0: Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. And this week we're talking about Record of Lotus War. But before we get into that, Johanna, what have you been up to since last we talked? Been streaming anything?
1: Happily, uh, two episodes into the new season of Mandalorian, which is giving me a break from my marathon of Picard, which... I was a little hesitant going into as much as I love Patrick Stewart, but I just wasn't sure whether retreading back into Next Generation was a good idea at this point, since, you know, it was a classic. I'm wondering, what are they going to add to this? But it's been great. I'm not going to give away any spoilers for people who want to go into it, but I can just say that the Borg Queen features heavily throughout (laughs) the three seasons, and that has been a real pleasure. I recommend Picard for Star Trek fans. It is not like DS9 or Enterprise or some of the Saturn <laughs> series that have been been in there. I haven't done too much of the other new Star Trek stuff. I, I watched some of Discovery, but Picard has been great.
0: Okay, cool. I have been watching Kunk on Earth, which if you haven't seen it, it is a BBC mockumentary where this fictional narrator, uh, Wilhelmina Kunk, I'm not sure the actress who plays her off the top of my head goes through the entire history of the world talking to college professors and museum directors and things like that. But she is profoundly stupid and uh, (laughs) knows nothing about the subject. They just dress her in tweed and she has a British accent. Therefore, she is an expert. (laughs) Uh, It is great. It's on Netflix. Check it out. But this week, we are going to be talking about record of Lotus war. So as you know, we've been doing a series on the golden age of sword and sorcery films, the 1980s to early nineties. Basically, this is all Johanna's fault (laughs) because she wanted to do something leading up to the new Dungeons and Dragons film, which my opinion, Dungeons and Dragons on film has never been done well or had never been done well through most of my childhood and teens. And then I hit age 20, and the Japanese managed to nail it with Record of Lotus War. Now, we'll discuss whether or not it's good storytelling later, but as far as actually capturing the feel of Dungeons & Dragons in video form, I think Record of Lotus War is, is it. It's about perfect. Let's give a little background of the year, because I like to contextualize stuff so you know what was going on at the time. 1990 a lot of people think of that as the true like dawn of the new millennium because it was a year where it felt like the whole world changed there was a lot of optimism for the future so in 1989 Dungeons and Dragons second edition came out it was first published and in Japan sword world tabletop role playing game came out and we'll talk about sword world and where that came from a little later. Uh, In November 1989, thousands of Germans started tearing down the Berlin Wall at night, and it became symbolic of the fall of communism throughout Europe. And in 1990, in January, the doomsday clock was set back to 10 minutes till midnight, the farthest it's been since 1969. By 1991, it would go back to 17 minutes to midnight, the farthest back it's ever been. The doomsday clock is a clock used to track how close we are to nuclear Armageddon. <laughs> also, the first McDonald's opened in Russia. It closed in at the end of last year, 2022, due to the Ukraine war. Also, television was changing rapidly. The Simpsons debuted um, as a Christmas special in 1989, but then as a regular mid-series replacement in January. Seinfeld, which had aired five episodes the previous summer, became a mid-season replacement. In April, Twin Peaks premiered as mid-season replacement. The Hubble Telescope was launched. In May 1990, the World Health Organization removed homosexuality from its international list of diseases. In August of 1990, the Gulf War started, and the average price of a gallon of gas at the start of the year was about 93 cents. By December, it would be $1.35, and it has been uphill ever since. But there's a lot of optimism. So here's another example. In February of 1990, Nelson Mandela was released after 27 years in prison for opposing apartheid. Uh, Smoking was banned on most domestic flights in the U.S. It wouldn't be until 2000 until it was completely eliminated from all flights, but it started then. Uh, There were widespread poll tax riots in Britain in March. Also in March, 13 paintings were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston by thieves dressed in police uniforms. The value of the paintings lost was over $500 million, making it the largest private property heist in history. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. In uh, August of 1990, during the first Gulf War, NBC delayed the start of The Tonight Show by five minutes to give their affiliates more time to cover the war. And those precious five minutes, they never gave back. And this is why all late night shows now start at 11.35 instead of 11.30. <laughs> yep. I threw this one in for, um, for Rosie. The World Series champions, the Cincinnati Reds, beat the Oakland A's in October. In December, the UK and France drilling teams broke through to each other, creating the, the channel, linking...
1: Wow. That yeah. was so recent. Oh my goodness. You think of it as being around forever, but 1990.
0: Yeah. You, you consider 1990 recent?
1: <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I I don't count my teens. Like that never happened. I went straight from being a totally functional pre-teen who knew who she was to being a totally functional 35 year old who knows who she is and nothing else happened in between.
0: Okay. Um. So, and then in, in, and so... Think of all this connecting of nations that was happening, the, the UK with the continent, all that. And then if that wasn't enough, Christmas of 1990, Tim Berners-Lee accessed the first web page on the first web server using the first web browser, which, of course, he created. Uh, and then I, because of the nature of our show, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a list started circulating on Usenet at this time of actresses with beautiful eyes. That list would eventually grow to become the Internet Movie Database.
1: Wow. I, I love these recaps because it's a good reminder of, like, what was similar at the time that the show or the movie was happening and what was different. When you mentioned the Doomsday Clock, I had to just, like, quick check, like, how are we doing today? And it's at 90 seconds to midnight. Apparently, there's actually been a lot of coverage of this that I've missed. <laughs> so thanks for the note, Uh We are closer than ever to uh, nuclear Armageddon, as it turns out.
0: Uh, They only reset it in every January. So we'll have to wait another year to find out if it goes forward or backward. Okay, so that brings us to Record of Lotus War. There was a user group of computer users known as SNE. SNE stood for syntax error. In the basic language of computer programming. And they played Dungeons Dragons. Dungeons Dragons had been released in Japan in 1986. So to celebrate its one-year anniversary and sort of popularize it, they were evangelists for the game. They created a replay. Basically, uh writer Ryo Mizuno did a serialized transcription of their gaming sessions in Comptique magazine, a Japanese computer magazine. This launched a whole new genre in Japan, the replay genre, where manga, Japanese comic books, and anime would be created as replays of actual games. So if at times it seems like they were making it up as they went along, it's because they were making it up as they went along. (laughs) This... Series of articles became very popular and then it was condensed into what's called a light novel, which is the Japanese version of a young adult novel that then became adapted to a manga, which is Japanese comics that then got adapted into an anime, Japanese animation, and that eventually made it across to the US where it was translated in English with English actors English-speaking actors, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which brings us to our guest today, Bill Timoney. Bill Timoney was the voice of the protagonist here, Parn. Bill is from New Jersey. Some of his more well-known roles prior to this, All My Children. Uh, I had a run on All My Children. And then also after this, some some well-known roles for our genre fans here on the show would be 12 Monkeys uh, Mission to Mars. Please welcome to the show Bill Timoney. Hi guys. Hi Eric. Hi Johanna. Thank you very much for having me here.
1: Thanks for joining us, Bill.
0: We're glad to have you. Let's let's go way, way back. Before we get into the record of Lotus work, because everything on this show is about contextualizing stuff. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to go into the performing arts. I was the smallest
2: boy in my grammar school class, and I had a very pronounced stutter. So you find it easy to believe that as much as I liked athletics, I usually got my butt kicked in athletics. Uh, My dad is a good athlete. My older brother, good athlete. Uh, So I I found it very, um, very uh, comforting to escape into uh, film, uh, TV, theater later. Um, but I live for film. My parents gave me a, a Super 8 camera back when they had Super 8 cameras. And I made all my little movies in the backyard and down the woods with all the neighborhood guys. I made my werewolf movies, my World War II movies and all that stuff. Uh, very Spielberg-esque, I guess. Uh, and, <laughs> and was obsessed with, uh, with film. With film. And then when I was 13, my life changed because my mom dropped me and the guys off on a Saturday afternoon to a double bill. Of You only Live Twice and Thunderball. Uh, mm. Now, UA, in between bond years, they would reissue previous bonds on a double bill. So I'm old enough to have seen every Connery bond on a big screen.
0: Wow, Wow.
2: Um, my, really, my first bond memory is the commercials for On a Majesty's Secret Service. But I also remember the commercials for the uh, action figures. They're not dolls! The action figures <laughs> for Bond and Odd Job, and Odd Job had the arm that threw the the little yeah. the hat. You know, they're very GI Joe like, I guess. Um, and of course, you know the scuba gear for the Thunderball Bond and the uh, Sp- astronaut outfit, Um But the uh, what made it a transitional moment for me, transformational moment, was watching those two films back to back. That. Wonderful afternoon. Mm. We hit the moment where they're counting down the rocket, and I'm going to assume you guys are familiar with the Connery bonds.
0: Absolutely. In fact, we we did Doctor No on the show. Yeah, I saw
2: the the the, uh, Spectre uh, agent, not agent really, crewman counting down the blast off from the volcano at the climax. Three minutes and counting. <laughs> Two minutes and counting. Very ex- specific voice. But the other night, I had seen on the NBC Saturday Night at the Movies the greatest Pink Panther film of all, which is A Shot in the Dark. And it's the introduction of um, of Clouseau's manservant, Cato.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And who I was looking at on the big screen in You'll Live Twice is Cato. I didn't know the actor's name was Bert Quoke. I was 13. But I'm looking at Bert Quoke. And I remember seeing his first line in Shot in the Dark. Inspector Closol's residence, one moment, please. Mm-hmm. And that's not the voice I heard coming out of him. I heard, two minutes and counting. <laughs> and it, it fascinated me. As much as I enjoyed Bond and I enjoyed the action and all the girls, I got really fascinated by the voices. And, of course, then I noticed that, that uh, number three in Thunderball... Uh, Emil Largo, had the same voice as Tiger Tanaka in yo I Live Twice.
3: Mm. Yeah.
2: And that Kissy Suzuki in yo Live Twice had the same voice as uh, Nurse Patricia Fearing in Thunderball. Mm. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm only a kid, but I was like, huh? Pre-internet, pre-IMDB, it took me forever. But I figured out there was not just... Dubbing, which is you know square peg around a round hole, one language instead of the other, but revoicing, where yes you loop in your own dialogue, but sometimes another actor is brought in to loop in uh, the actor on screen's dialogue. And I stayed on that my entire career. Yeah, I grew up on the Bugs Bunny cartoons, so I worship Mel Blanc. Uh, so me and my brother and the guys were always doing voices. But when I got into this business as a career. That was something I kept, no matter what I did on camera, I kept looking for a way to get into voice. And sure enough, a person I knew who worked as an assistant at a talent agency, who I knew was involved somehow in that, because this was a secret. Mm. They pay pay scale. They don't pay scale plus 10, so agents don't represent it. Mm. So the only way you could find it was hitting the streets. (laughs) And around 91 or so, uh, this person who you guys would know, because she figures very prominently later on in our story, she said, hey, I know, I know these um, sound guys are doing this piece of garbage thing. Uh, nobody in town wants to do it because it's disgusting. And I went, do I have to use my real name? She said, no. I said, well, then I'm okay with disgusting. I, I want to get in. <laughs> and I did this thing. Uh, and sure enough, the editors and the recording guys went, Hey, you're really good and you work really fast. We got something next week. Do you want to? And that's how it started. And the first thing was uh, for Central Park Media, which was at the vanguard of importing anime. In fact, in New York, they were the game. You know, Texas had their own. L.A. had their own. San Francisco, Vancouver. But in New York, it was Central Park Media. Uh, And that's how I was now in with Central Park Media.
0: And I started dubbing. Okay, so you were a working actor before you became a working voice actor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I started
2: with a Shakespeare tour for nine months around the country. and uh, But when I was in college, I used to cut class in New Jersey and go into the city. I'd audition. I would uh, do commercials. I would do background in movies. And uh, I got really set with uh, All My Children, which was the number two rated soap at the time. And I did background. And I was, I was established as a recurring high school student in there shows enormously popular Greg and Jenny storyline. And in fact, I had auditioned for the role of Greg. And there was another character named Tad and I was his stand-in and I do bit parts here and there. And then when I came back from the Shakespeare tour, uh, they were bringing Tad back and they asked me to to audition and I got down to producers. It became between me and the guy who got it, a guy named Michael E. Knight. But they really liked me in my audition. It was a new producer didn't know me. And she said, I really like that Timony guy. We need to have Greg's now in college at Pine Valley University, and we don't have a roommate for him yet. Uh, let's create a role for him. So they created this, hmm. the preppy nerd of Pine Valley, Alfred Vanderpool, for me as a result of my TAD auditions. And that was my, you know, you talk about the roles people know me for. Uh, that's still probably what I'm best
0: known for, even though it's, you know, way
2: back in the rearview mirror.
0: Wow. Okay, so let's get to Central Park Media since we've already brought it up. Um, right. So this disgusting thing, I assume we're talking about Legend of the Overfiend.
2: It was recorded as original title, Um I did, I think, two long days on it. And I flew. And when we got done with my role, they said, can you do this? Can you do this? And I am all over the first one because, you know, they cut it into two. Uh, right. Overfiend and Demon Womb, and uh, they really liked that I worked fast because I really took to it. Um, and uh, I have I've have scenes with myself. I've scenes where my character Nagumo is having a uh, discussion with Nikki, trying to protect his his girl, and Nikki's this tough buff guy. And I'm the voice of Nikki as well, so I have whole scenes where I'm talking to myself in uh, in uh, in Overfiend. And my, just to put a hat on the hat, <laughs> what I did in Overfiend is what Nikki Vanderziel did with Dr. No.
3: Mm.
2: Now, did you talk about Nikki when you did your Dr. No? We did not All specifically
0: right. go into Nikki's.
2: Nikki was specifically hired to revoice Ursula Andres in Dr. No. That's not mm. Ursula Andres' voice. We, we did say, voice. mention that yes. part, yeah. But because she worked so well and could alter her pitch slightly... Rather than them spend, because remember, Doctor Noah's low budget. So rather than now they were supposed to bring in Eunice Gason so she could record her dialogue for um, for Sylvia Trench, right? And they just had, since they had Nikki there, they saved money by having her revoice Eunice Gason. So Eunice Gason is Sylvia Trench in the first two films, Doctor No and For Much of Love. That's not her voice. That's Nikki Vanderziel. Other mm-hmm. than other than Money Penny, and uh, Zena Marshall who plays. Uh, Miss Tarot, who brings Bond up the hill and, and she tries to seduce and assassinate him, and, and he, he pull, turns the tables on her. Other than, than Lois Maxwell and, and Zena Marshall, every single speaking actress you see in Dr. No is voiced by Nikki Vanderziel.
1: That's insane.
2: <laughs> the, the nurse here, the secretary there. Oh, you poor dears, we have to get you. Every single bit part, if it's a female, Unless it's Lois Maxwell or Zena Marshall, the voice you hear is Nikki Van Man, wow.
1: that Re- takes the misogyny to like a whole new level <laughs> in that film. <laughs> well,
2: I don't, I don't know about that because, because the men get revoiced all over the place in Dr. No true. as well. By, yeah. by, by, as you know, by the great Robert Rieti. Robert Rieti, who is the voice of Emil Largo in Thunderball and the voice of Tiger Tanaka in You Live Twice. You know, he estimated, he got the, you know, because Rieti did it all. He would record, he would voice, he would adapt scripts, he would direct. And he estimates the budget. big-budget film Waterloo, where Rod Steiger plays Napoleon and Christopher Plummer plays Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, he estimated that he himself voiced 95 male roles in that film.
1: Wow. Okay. All right. Well, then, now I changed my mind. I'm learning a bit about film history that I did not yeah, know before. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't nuts. go...
2: Yeah, the it's guys a get, thing. <laughs> yeah, on camera guys get screwed over as much as on camera women. If you're a bit if you have a small bit role and you're filmed outdoors, particularly in the sixties and seventies before they could get really good sound, odds are you were re recording especially if you're not in LA or New York. Like for like for example, in the movie The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. Bruce Willis gets shot in the belly and falls back on the bed while Donnie Wahlberg goes into the bathroom. And he's uh, Bruce is gasping and, 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 and you know, trying to while Olivia Williams tries to save his life. Well, you don't hear Bruce Willis in that scene. That's me. (laughs) Wow. I'm the voice of his groaning and gasping. Because by the time you get into post-production and you're ready to re-record that stuff, he's off on another movie, maybe in another country. Right. So you have somebody from the ADR group, what they call looping team, step up to the mic and do it. You ever see um, uh, Hannibal? Yeah. Yeah. first, yeah. Okay. So, Joko Wawenek pitches Gary Oldman... Into the wild boar, uh, pit, and the hogs tear him to pieces oh, while yeah. Gar- while Gary Oldman is shrieking in horror. That's not Gary Oldman shrieking. That's me shrieking.
3: Everyone,
2: I feel like <laughs> ground your Marx and to bet your life, you know, say yeah. the secret word. You said so I said my secret word. Second word.
3: <laughs> so yeah, so I got
2: I got fascinated by revoicing and looping and dubbing when I was a kid when. Um, when the soap sort of uh, went away from me in the early 90s, that's when I found my way into dubbing. Like so many people, you get, your, uh, you get your break because you're willing to do something nobody else is. I always think of Karloff in Frankenstein, how he was willing to endure all that makeup. And I also rationalized the fact that the Overfiend box said, warning, absolutely not for children all over it. And I certainly rationalized the fact that I really, frankly,
0: could not pay my rent that month. So that's how I got it. Because some of our some of our fans will be completely familiar with Ertsuku Doji, but uh, not everyone. So Well whole... don't do that to them. <laughs> I have to I have to. I, I, I say this because I saw Johanna no. Googling while we were talking. Like, what is that? No. You know? So I have to protect her here. I have to I have... All
2: right. We've talked about well, right. Eric, Eric, please then. <laughs> let let me let me answer the entire question with this simple line for everybody and then we can move on. Because okay. I, I consider it perhaps the, not quite the, the pinnacle, but maybe the nadir of my entire career. When, I, <laughs> when in that film, you get to hear me deliver the immortal line, <sighs> A virgin, what a special treat. <laughs> That's all you need to know, folks. <laughs> Okay. okay, I'll just say
0: of its era, it was the most notorious hentai produced, and it was um, it, it's where when we talk about naughty tentacles, that's, that's what where we're it began. To. Yeah, that's where that's it began, kind of,
2: that's, and and yeah. probably not that I know, but I suspect that that thing probably looks like a tame PG compared to what's out there today. But back probably. then, we probably. we did, there, there midnight showings at the Angelica on Houston Street in the mm. village for, and I mean, and, and I got my girlfriend, the job as the female lead and some of my other buddies. And we all went that first Friday night at midnight and we couldn't get a seat. We had to lie down in front <laughs> and we talked to everybody in the theater and they were all NYU college kids. And I said, you guys are into this. I said, no, we have no idea what it is. I said, why are you here? They said, because the ad had two things. It said animated and X rated. <laughs>
0: Well, but, it's definitely those things. But yeah. by the end
2: of it, they were groaning as well. You know, it was like, oh, oh no, come on, man. No, but we've
0: <laughs> talked before. It also kind of has a foot in this Godzilla Kaiju thing, too. Oh, going on. sure. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, like, yeah. There's there's a lot of really cool giant monster battles in there, too. Yes. So.
2: When, I mean, if you could, like when Flesh Gordon came out, you guys weren't born then. But Flesh Gordon is an important film to see because... At the time, pornography was made on film, as you know, by watching uh, Boogie Nights. And it was before the transition to video. And there was some, some ambition. You know, art films coming out of Europe in the 60s had, had mature adult content. And some of the American pornographers tried to make kind of quasi-European art films with their pornography. But, but a big part of the pornographic movement at that time was other film parody. And this guy came up with the idea to parody the old 1930s Flash Gordon serial is Flesh Gordon. Well, he hired a bunch of ambitious kids out of like USC and UCLA. And what they created was so surprisingly uh, effective that they tried their best to cut out the stuff that gave it an X rating and re-release it as an R. And if you haven't seen it, it's important to see now because who did most of the special effects for Flesh, Gordon? But a college kid named Dennis Muren, M-U-R-E-N, who becomes perhaps the most important special effects artist within the, say, Star Wars universe and those things. Mm-hmm. You know, the the the. I mean, if you go from Will O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen and Jim Danforth. John Steers, you know those guys. Then boom! I mean, it's it's Dennis Miran has what seventeen Oscars or something like that, and it all yeah. starts with this odd little thing, Flesh Gordon. And if you could do that with to bring this around, if you could do that with Oxygidoji, where you took out the extraordinarily horrifying, misogynistic, violent rape stuff, I agree with you. There are some elements when they go when they go with the kaiju elements that they achieve some really terrific stuff and it really is too bad that you know the other stuff is in there and i'd love to see somebody try to try to edit that out and and restore the quote unquote good stuff to that uh, that film
0: well uh, maybe that's a challenge out there for someone to do an edit we've seen edits of other movies uh, so maybe maybe there'll be a fan edit of that sure
2: sure they, they what uh what, what was it they attack of the clones they they cut out or phantom menace they cut out uh jar jar binks yeah, yeah let, let's see yes. if you could yeah if she could do that with uh Overfeined, yeah.
0: Okay, so enough. <laughs> let's let's go past that. Uh, uh, all right. So now let's get into um, Lotos in particular. So as I said, um, this was uh, they were fans of Dungeons and Dragons. They uh, SNE. They also claimed that they were playing. Um, Tunnels and Trolls, which was uh, a uh, competitor to Dungeons and Dragons at the time, and RuneQuest. So it's kind of a ma- mashup of a few different role-playing games. So basically, the uh, the the this launched this this kind of replay thing, which now was not popular in the West at the time, but now is. I mean. In fact, it's even gotten beyond that to, to like watching people play. Critical Role has built an empire off of this. Um, and uh, there's other playthroughs. Twitch Twitch exists to watch people watch other people play video games. Anyway, um, as I said, they were sort of making it up as they go along. And if you read the original articles, they refer to them all by their character names. So... Even if the player is arguing with the dungeon master over something, it says Deedlet says this, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Deedlet being the breakout, uh, character even at the very beginning so they had like uh, a fan poll with less than 200 people in all of japan writing in prop less than 150 maybe so that shows you how small this was at the time but with about 50 votes Deedlit came out as the uh breakout character and the the guy that created uh deedlet uh uh hiroshi yamato eventually eventually became a science fiction writer in Japan, a well-known science fiction writer in his own right. Anyway, they're making this up as they go along. They're literally, so I understand, uh, so for Johanna and Rosie, if the, the, the if, and Bill, if the plot seems difficult to follow when you jump into this, it's because it assumes you know the four years of history leading up to this before this <laughs> starts. So let's talk about that. So you get these scripts, wh- like, do you know what's going on? Like uh, No, you're asking me? No. Yeah, um, yeah.
2: Now I did not adapt the scripts uh, to Lodos. Lodos is, is a big change for me because prior to that, I had partnered up with uh, Sandra, who was the uh, one who made uh, Oroxydoji happen for me. And you guys know her because she's no longer with us, but late in her career, she became very castable as like the, the perfect. New York City, old Jewish lady. And she's <laughs> and she is everywhere. My favorite one of hers is in the Spider-Man, where uh, Tom Holland tries to stop a guy from breaking into a car uh, in an alley, but it's his car. Yeah. Mm. And he's all inept about it. People start hanging out of their windows talking. And Stan Lee is one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, Sandra is the woman who hangs out, does most of the talking to him, and then Stan is out, and she sees him, and he goes, "Marjorie, how's you?" and they start talking. <laughs> well, that's Sandra James. Sandra James had a wonderful career late in her life, but prior to that, she was coordinating voice talent for ADR groups, and uh, and she used me a lot. And I pitched her after this whole Roksukidoshi thing. I said, "This company, CPM, let's get in there with them." And she really didn't want anything to do with it, so she went. Well, we'll use my banner, which was speakeasy. She said, but you do it all. So we cast a lot of the dubs for CPM in those early days. Mm. The titles I can remember off the top of my head. Uh, here is Greenwood, Battleskipper, uh, My, 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 which was a favorite of mine. And, uh, and, and we would, you know, we didn't make the decision who, who got to, k- to get the job, but we made the decision of who got to be heard. So there were auditions. And we would put ourselves in the auditions and we would usually get cast. So when they went to hire us for Lotus War, they said to Sandra, uh, not not Bill. We, we've heard Bill a lot. Let's find somebody else. So I wasn't going to get cast in Lotus War. And I knew that Lotus War was going to be a lot of episodes and that the hero was going to be a really cool role. So Sandra said, well, let's just lie. So I worked in my upper register on my audition. And instead of putting my name Bill Timoney on the audition when we submitted it to uh, Central Park Media. We just put in number one, two, three, four, five. So they never knew the names. But the name that I made up was Billy Regan. And they said, Who'd you, who's this Billy Regan kid? He's great. So they hired me for Parn, not knowing that I was the guy they said, we don't want to hear him in, the, in this.
0: Right, right,
2: right. And nice. then I, So then I kept up this, this charade of having this alter ego named Billy Regan. To the point where I like him so much because he works so much in dubbing that I use his name a lot. He's in a lot of anime. I make, yeah. like I don't want to use my, my own name, like when I do Pokemon even. I, I want it to be Billy Regan's job and not my
0: own job. So I wanted to s- s- throw this in here because we've actually heard him on, the, we've heard Billy Regan on the show before. If you guys remember when we were doing Cowboy Bebop. There were scenes where Jet was on a stakeout with his partner. Whenever there's that flashback to Jet's story, they would be listening to baseball, baseball. on the radio, and the baseball announcer mm. is Billy Regan. Yep. Oh. Yep. And the and the director of that
2: one was Mary. Oops, I'm going. To blank on her last name. She's in everything. If if you if you know the Silent Hill game, that that haunting female saw so, just that voice going ah oh, that's Mary why am I going blank on Mary's name because she, she's in everything she's married to the guy from uh, who's one of the great voice actors in LA who does uh, the um, World Police the um, hmm. uh, Team America World Police he's oh the guy God. he's the guy who goes Gary use your acting uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I can't believe I'm going to blank out their names. I'm sorry. But yeah, so anyway, so when we get the scripts, the guy who CPM hired to adapt the scripts and produce the dub, Michael Albin, the great Michael Albin, they got them one by one. And I've since directed scores and adapted scores of, of dubbings. And when they're a series, you only get what's in front of you. They never give you, in 20 episodes, this is going to be that. Mm. Which was tricky for us because there were no dubbers in New York, really, when we started. So I would bring in actors from a theater company I was a part of called MCC. And I'd train them. I'd have them do bits and voila and background voices so they could get the process. But sometimes I would put somebody in a small role. And six episodes later, that role became a hugely important role. And, <laughs> and they or may or may not have been ready for it. We had that happen on a show called Iria, Zerum, the Animation, which was a disaster force that we. This a, one of the producers wanted a buddy his to get a part, and we gave him a tiny part. And the guy was, was he was a friend of the producer. He really wasn't an actor. And then we, the thing came back, and now that guy is a big role. And it took us twice, three times as long to record him. And as you know, in this in these things, these were very low budget. So you needed people, yes, to work well, but they needed to work fast Right. and a slow a, and a slow A plus would always lose the job to a fast B minus. Right. Right. Okay.
0: That's that's like the world of comic books, too. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure, com, com, completely. So um, what so what went into what thought processes and what, what went into the I to to voicing Parn? What did you think about when you were coming up with Parn's voice?
2: Well, I know I had to keep him in uh, Billy Riggins' upper register because at the time I didn't want them to find out that it was me doing it. Um, <laughs> so when he got eager about something, it was always up there as opposed to always being up there, you know, or down there. Um, although it was fun when we did Chronicles of the Heroic Night many years later and we flash forward to an older Parn. Mm. It was fun to work with him in my regular... At the time I must have been in my 40s or maybe my late 30s and I was able to work with him here. But he also didn't, because he now had knowledge and he had experience, he could afford to conserve his energy. Whereas the young Parn, everything about the young Parn is, is high energy. Come on, we got to go. Let's do this now. Who's that? Is that, <laughs> that didlet? You know, that kind of thing. So it was fun to have Billy dwell up in there as Parn.
0: Yeah. Parn in the the transcription of the original um the original Dungeons and Dragons game is very much like that. He's very eager. He's always the first one to charge in, uh, has no interest in deedlet. He's actually interested in the princess cause he wants to become a king. So he wants to marry the princess. So the, the, the deedlet story comes along later. We should mention deedlet is the elf. So, uh, if Will was here, uh, we would talk about the Beck me edition. So this is, uh, in the U S this was released as the, uh, beginners and experts set that came out in around 1983. Like I said, didn't make it till to Japan until 1986. This had a whole different, uh, way of doing Dungeons and Dragons where it's sort of mixed classes and, and races. So you had your a standard party. You, if you had everybody, you would have a, a fighter that was Parn. You'd have a magic user that was slain. You would have a cleric. That was Ito. You would have an elf. That was deed You would have a dwarf that was Geem. Uh, and, uh, you would have a thief, uh, which now they call a rogue because thief is not, uh, you know not politically correct enough for the company so it's um that was woodchuck uh, yeah and uh, i think that's everyone if i've got the entire cast in mind um by the way guys uh this is mostly for johanna and rosie um does
1: games strike any bells for you guys yeah, the first couple times I heard the name, I'm like, wait, are they just like blatantly stealing this name from Gimli? Like, what it's, are they doing here? <laughs>
0: it is it is an homage to Gimli from Lord of the Rings. That's why he's called Gim. Yeah. Um, but as I said earlier, Deedlet uh, becomes the breakout character. I don't know about you guys. I find her a little annoying, um, especially here. She's such a popular character, though, that as late as 2021, there is a Deedlet in Wonder Labyrinth video game that came out so deedlet is still like the breakout character here but what i gotta say is if you guys are you with me deedlet uh what did you guys like her did you
3: what was your take on her i thought that she tried to get Tarn's attention a little too much in the beginning um but i i don't know i liked her i did like her character development as she went through the show uh, she became older and, and wiser, and not so much trying to get parents' attention, but just more, you know, down to business. And in the end, I mean, he saves her life, and it looks like they're together. But that—that um, that was one thing that I was telling my kids when I was watching the series—is, you know, the 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 intro, and then the song that they played rolling the credits. I'm like. This isn't a love story between them, but the songs she's totally fighting for him. And and it didn't really make any sense at all until the end after he literally saved her life. Um, but, all right. Yeah. The,
0: was, the re- I like her. The reason I bring this up is because I might subject you guys to Slayers. So Slayers was another anime from this time. And the main character, if you think of kind of the way Woodchuck is in this and Sheerus the Mercenary, except if they were one character and that character was a sorceress, but had the personality of a Petulant Child, and was also voiced by Lisa Ortiz, who does the voice of D-Lid in this, that's Slayers. And Slayers, among Dungeons and Dragons fans, is considered the warning. Like, Record of Lotus, where they say, is dungeons and dragons the way the dungeon master believes his campaign is going to go and slayers is the way it actually always ends up going with uh, <laughs> crazy murder hobos and stuff like that anyway i just wanted to throw that out there because we'll probably end up doing slayers at some point in the future All right, back to... just...
1: Yeah, yeah, just as a comment. I mean, I I went into this sort of expecting Parn's character to be the least interesting one. Sort of where everyone else is a foil to him, but a more interesting foil. And it didn't turn out that way. And it was something I... You know, I was... I was very invested in his, you know, restoring his honor and, like, figuring out his relationship with his father. And it, it gave the series some direction which helped a lot because the plot was difficult to follow it was like hard to tell like are these bad guys aligned with each other or not and why not and but now they're kind of working together here and that that was difficult but I had a strong sense of at least like what Parn's motivation was and so Bill I wanted to ask you like you, you wanted to play the hero character, even though often that Luke Skywalker archetype is not necessarily the most interesting one in the universe, but you made it interesting. Like, how did you go about, like, trying to make that character not, like, feel, at, make that high energy feel like something that was interesting and not something that was uh, typical for that archetype? At the
2: end of the day, an actor... Like, like anybody who is creating content, a writer, a director, or a designer, uh, a musician, everybody has only two things specific to their art and craft, and that is their own taste and judgment. And, yeah, I wanted, I wanted Parn for, as you say, mercenary means. It seemed like he'd have the largest queue count, which meant I would have the, the most hours and I'd get paid Um, which was tricky because, again, it it was my thing to be very, very fast. I really prided myself not only in doing one take, but I like to do what they call chase it, where I don't rehearse, I don't preview the the clip. I glance at the line, and then we run it, and we record the rehearsal. That's called chasing. And So as I see him organically, I'm reacting. So I'm relying on my taste and my judgment, to stay away from the word you you used or what you meant to say was cliche, yeah. Because so much, so many, so many moments can be so stereotypical. How do you make it fresh, especially when it's already drawn?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I can't go. Do I whisper this line or scream it? Well, if he's drawn like this, <laughs> you know, I I can't whisper it. But vocally, I want to find nuance in a in a way that is is effective immediately. So I I just want to react because again, one take wonder, I want to react organically staying within what I do as opposed to doing what I, I think the audience expects Mm. because, because then I go into what the audience has already seen, has already heard. And you know, the essence of good storytelling or, or good, good story consuming is give me something new. I don't want the same old, same old. I want something new. And that's what I tried to bring to the character throughout my performance.
0: At some point, you took over directing the voice actors. Uh,
2: Almost immediately. Uh, The guy named Dave Siegel, a wonderful guy who worked at National, which is where we did the recording. Um, And National's not there anymore, but you could see it at the end of Tootsie. It's where their fictional soap opera, Southwest General is taped. Mm. And at the end, when she comes out sign autographs and there he is, it's right there and you see the National banner and all that. That's where we recorded. Dave worked for National and he was assigned Record of Lotus War to take care of the client CPM and our Michael Alban. But about two days into recording, he was called off. National needed him to finish up something else he'd been doing. And Michael trusted me enough because he was producing and adapting. He wasn't directing. He asked me to take over the directing. So I did the first... After that, like, second or third day, I did the first half of the episodes. And what is it? Is it an 11 episode run? 13. It's 13? All right. So I did the first, like, six or seven. And then Dave wrapped up what he had been doing, and he did the rest. Now, unfortunately, they had the first thing they did was the credits. So I'm not listed in there as the credits. Dave is listed as the only audio director. But I did the first half of that show. And, of course, when we came to uh, hearing Parn's father, is it Tessius? 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 I cast my brother. <laughs> um, and uh, Carla the Grey Witch is voiced by his wife, my sister in law, Simone, who uh, I thought did oh, a wow. fantastic. She did a fantastic. <laughs> Again, I didn't have the power to do that. I'd bring in people. But for the small parts like Tessius, I did have the power to just bring somebody in. Um, and that's how. That's how I was able to get those guys work. Mm-hmm. You know, we're actors in the nineties in New York, we're freelancers and work is work. And it was if it was really cool, like record of Lotus War, then all the better.
0: And did you tell them you gotta get this in one take or you're out of here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I would always encourage my people to well, I would bring them in. I'd have them watch me. I'd have them do the what we call walla, you know, all the all the soldiers fighting, all the villagers screaming. That's called walla, where it's just a walla bed. You're not necessarily matching flap or synchronizing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, but you get in the booth, you put on the cans, you get the beeps, and you and you get to learn that style of acting. And then when I thought certain people were, I always did it with the intention of of working these people up into bigger roles. Matching flap, by the way, is matching the lip movement. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, sinking. Yeah. Do you watch the the dub? I'm sorry, Rosie, but I just I need to know. Yeah. Do you, so you are familiar with our I have, I have our the our Central Park
0: media. I have the Central Park double disc box set, and you know it's my pro, one of my prized DVDs. Yeah. Rosie, what
3: were you gonna ask? I was just gonna say. So basically, you're like, we're gonna do the one take wonder, and it's a fan. It's a family tradition, so you have to do it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and
2: and my brother Mike, he ended up doing a lot when we moved on. Some years later, um, I was in L.A. when I moved back and I got married like early 2001, 2002. And I reached out to a buddy of mine uh, named Joe DeGiorgi up at Headline in, in Irvington, New York. And he was now uh, doing all the dubs for Media Blasters. And uh, that's where we did um, Chronicles of the Heroic Night. And that's where we did so many other titles. And I called him one day and said, hey, I'm back from L.A. and I'm looking for work. And he said, are you kidding me? I said, what? He goes, half hour ago, Crispin Freeman called me to tell me he was moving to L.A. and he wasn't going to be able to direct um, my dub of Gokudo Swordsman Extraordinaire, which is my baby. <laughs> Gokudo Extraordinaire is is my, is that's that's what I want leading off my obituary, is my work as a script adapter and dubbing director and voice actor on on the Gokudo films um, because I cherish what we did on that Um
0: well, if we all, do Gokudo, um, we'll have you back. Please. We'll have you back to talk about, please. about
2: it. Please. I'll, I'll give you a... T- I'll, let me tease it then. Okay. The key, the key with Gokudo was that Media Blasters stopped paying us. Now, they were notorious for being very, very late in their payments. But in this, they just weren't paying. Well, Joe, <laughs> the great, great, wise and wonderful Joe Georgi, producing this dub, loved Gokudo so much. It's so hilarious that he kept going and he paid wow. all of us out of his own pocket.
1: Wow. That's keep wow. It that never happens.
2: Never happens. But, and what was the, what was the twist? The twist was because they were very happy that we kept sending them the dubbed content without demanding them like, we're not going to do this anymore until you pay all, everything you owe us. They kept their mouth shut. They never bothered us, which they would normally do by saying, we need to see your script adaptation. So they never approved my script adaptations. <laughs> so on Gokudo, I ran hog wild. There, there's a scene where they walk past this tree and she's very nasty to him. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a parody of Slayers. And mm-hmm. she opens up her trunk and they have to go down into the... Into the um, but she and Gokudo are kind of going at it. They're snippy. So as Gokudo goes down... We only see the back of his head, which to me, I go hog wild because you don't see flap. So right. if somebody doesn't talk, I can give them lines. So as Gokudo, Gokudo walks into her trunk, based on how they've been antagonists to each other, I have Gokudo say, your roots are showing. <laughs> you know, just just I, I went as Warner Brothers, Mary Melody's, Chuck Jones, as I could on that show. And they didn't stop me. So wow. I would love to come back. When you guys do Gokudo, there was a wonderful guy who wrote for something called Revolution SF, um, a reporter or a journalist named Kevin. And he actually drove from Georgia to New York State to witness some of our recording sessions. And he wrote in his review, this is the first time I've said this. Don't watch it. Subtitled, you have to watch the dub.
0: You have to watch the dub. (laughs) So I'll be back. I'll be back. Alright, so awesome. before before we let you go here, I have to say that when I was young playing Dungeons & Dragons my parents of course hated it. It was during the Satanic Panic. There was a you know, a movie TV movie with Tom Hanks called Mazes and Monsters about a guy who plays it, goes insane, ends up in an institution they were convinced that in my 50s, which by the way I was playing Dungeons & Dragons yesterday, um I'm <laughs> the dungeon master still to this day and um yeah, I uh, they were worried about this, which all of this. I think you know where this is going. We got to talk about initiative.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a buddy of mine named Bob Sankowitz, who I've done theater with here in New Jersey, um, who is long time. I think he's been forty years as the dungeon master. Uh, and Bob's best pal is Brian O'Halloran, who plays Dante in the Clerks series. You know, you mentioned I'm from New Jersey. Right now, I live on the t- on the northern tip of the Jersey Shore. I live in the town where Kevin Smith films his Clerks movies. In
3: that fact, cool. if,
2: in fact, I worked on Clerks three. Uh, Brian asked me to to take a job on it, and I took the job because I could walk to work. The Clerks store is four <laughs> blocks from our house. Um, uh-huh. And Bob wrote this thing about four guys playing a Dungeons and Dragons game. And Brian O said he would play one of the roles. I said I'd play one of the roles, and. And Bob plays one. It's, uh, Bob wrote the part for him as a sort of a showcase for himself. Uh, and the fourth guy is a buddy of his uh, who he's, he's been in his Dungeons game team uh, uh, cult. I don't know, whatever word you want. <laughs> uh, so it's the four of us, but that's only half of it. The other half is a guy in a straitjacket in a cell and a doctor and two orderlies. Mm. And it's the exact four same actors. Nice. <laughs> and as and as you watch this film, you, the viewer, must decide which of the two cont- contexts is yeah. the re- is the reality. Is he is he is the dungeon master in his mind doing this thing where he's in a straitjacket with these other guys, or is he really a guy in a straitjacket and his fantasy is that he's playing a & dragons game with them? It's a it's a fun idea. Talented guy named Grayson Berry uh, directed it. Um, it's just being submitted to film festivals now. Now, Kevin runs a film festival here in Atlantic Highlands. Uh, it's called Smod Castle in November. He just started it. Um, and I would say that, you know, my, I, I find it easy to believe that this will be at Smod Castle. But but hopefully it will be in lots of other film festivals before this. It's called Initiative. And you can find it when you look for photos of the girls with pretty eyes. Oh, I'm
0: sorry, on uh, IMDb.com. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, I want to thank uh, Bill Timoney, uh, voice of Parn, aka Billy Regan, for being here today, joining us, and helping us see uh, the other side of Record of Lotus War. And we'll have him back at some point, hopefully. I'd be delighted. Thank you guys so so much. It's so great to talk to you all.
1: This was awesome.
0: I want to remind everyone: if you want to uh, reach us, you can at GC8 Podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, just tell one other person about the podcast. But until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. This is Rosie. Signing off.